Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We see blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. And continuing our exploration of Talal Asad's book, Formations of the Secular, the goal again is to go through the introduction, see how far we can get by the time Ramadan arrives. Chances are we're only going to make it through a few pages of the whole thing because uh, my focus in general, uh, for those of you who know me well, is on quality as opposed to quantity. My focus is on capturing little bits of ideas rather than some comprehensive understanding of something in, in a short period of time that is quickly forgotten. So so very, very brief review, review of what we've covered uh, last time. One key point is, is that when we're speaking of the secular in Muslim religious terms, we often speak of it as something bad, something negative. And I'm suggesting not to think of, of secular as something automatically negative. Uh, because when we do that, we often miss what are the key points, what are the key complexities. Uh, that's one key, key uh, uh, takeaway from, from last time. The second, the second key point is just the definition of the word secular. At this point, it's dunyawi, meaning of the world. And this is a, a, a modern idea of splitting the sacred from the profane or the religious from the secular. This is, uh, this is uh, a, an approach that has defined our world Third key point to take is that many of our practices, if they are religious in terms of flavor, might actually be secular as a practice. And the easiest example is when we put calligraphy, you know, Islamic Quranic calligraphy on our walls, we might do it to, to have some religious presence in our, in our household. Uh, but uh, a point I introduced is to consider that that might actually be a secular practice. And as we will discuss through the course uh, of, of these readings, even many approaches that many of us take to the Quran itself might be surprisingly secular. The last big review point from, from before, I just want to, to look at a brief history of, of, of Western uh, dominant Western ideas. And let's see if I can pull this up correctly. So, so hopefully you all, even though none of you have your cameras on, uh, hopefully uh, uh, you can see this history, uh, this brief history of, of Western ideas. Uh, key points, one is roughly the 1500s, another is roughly the 1700s. And then we have the modern period and the postmodern period. And the 1500s, among the other things that are taking place, are, are the Renaissance and then the Protestant Reformation. And the way we spoke of the Protestant Reformation was that you had a number of university-educated people, starting with Dr. Martin Luther, who, who's, who decided we don't need the church to get closer to God, that we have the, uh, uh, we have the Bible in front of us, and the church is corrupt, so we don't need that. And then in terms of the Renaissance, they weren't thinking of themselves at the time that we're in this, this rebirth of the world. But a key issue is that 
uh, a system of credit started getting formed uh, through which people could, could obtain and, and loan and transfer for money. And then in the 1700s, during the Enlightenment, instead of having Christians saying to Christians, we don't need you anymore, now we have philosophers who are saying to the Christians, we can live a better life without religion. And by using empirical philosophy, among other approaches to, to determine what is a better way of life. And then in the, in the Industrial Revolution, with the rise of, of mass production and such, the economy is being revolutionized further. And this is actually one of the big processes that leads to the end of the Ottoman Empire. So this week, many of us have been have been reflecting on the fact that the Ottoman Empire ended 100 years ago. Actually, I think it ended about 98 years ago. But uh, 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 the Industrial Revolution, especially in the production of weapons, uh, was something that the Ottoman Empire could not keep up with. Usually we say it's a printing press and all those other things. Those are part of the story, but this is one of the bigger aspects of it. And then moving to the modern period, some people might uh, associate this with, with the 1900s. Uh, here, now we have the technical state and the nation state, where science is now, now uh, proving dominant, and those who are the most advanced in science are becoming the most dominant in many aspects of life. And then we have, after World War II, we have the postmodern era. And post is implying a pushback on modernity, the idea being that science is good uh, for things like weapons, or I'm sorry, science is good for things like medication, but science is also useful in the wrong way for destruction. And so the postmodern period, which is what many say we are still in, is a critique of what has come before. And in terms of the evolution of religion in these periods, first in the 1500s, this is also the beginning of European imperialism. <clears throat> and, and so we have a, the, one of the biggest splits in, in Christianity, the second big split. The first one is in the 1100s with the, um, the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so this is the rise of the Protestant Church. And then religion in Europe goes on the defensive and it never recovers uh, through the period of the Enlightenment, through the science technical period, and now through the postmodern period. Nevertheless, we do see religion growing everywhere in the world, but it's taking on a new form. And often we use terms like fundamentalism and such, and we'll define those terms as well. I don't think we touched on them with much detail last time. So that's just a very, very, very brief review of some of the big points. And thank you to Malahat and Khalid for, for at least having your cameras on. And I asked the rest of you to make it so I don't have to stare at black rectangles the whole time. Okay, in any case, <clears throat> Uh, let's let's pull up the book. And can you all see the the book on my screen, or no? No. No. Yeah, it's pregnant. I recognize that voice. That was William's voice. Yeah. Uh, yeah we can see it now. Okay. Very good, Marshall. So this is the paragraph we looked at last time. <laughs> no need to review. This paragraph we'll just reread because it's, it's picking up where I just finished. The contemporary salience of religious movements around the globe and the torrent of commentary on them made by scholars and journalists have made it plain that religion is by no means disappearing in the modern world. So 
So I've said that religion has been on the defense primarily in Europe, um, but increasingly in many different parts of the world in the sense that the criticisms that people are giving to religion, the speakers of the religious community have, are not able to respond to. And instead what's happening is religion and the people of religion are trying to justify religion using the dominant ideas. And so for example, every time we say, look, the Quran talks about the embryo, 1400 years before, before uh, you know, humans discovered the embryo. Okay, that, that is basically saying that science is our Furqan. And now we've justified the Quran using science. Okay. And then what we'll discuss later on is why that's not a very, very strong argument. That's actually a sign of very weak faith. If that's the foundation of your faith, that the Quran talks about the embryo, I'm telling you, you have weak faith. And so, so the point is that uh, many in the world of religion trying to defend religion will use the dominant ideas to then justify the existence of religion. But religion is still here. Every single thing that, that, that the non-religious forces and ideas have tried to throw religion still, for example, succeeds or still, still exists, I should say. The resurgence of religion has been welcomed by many as a means of supplying what they see as a needed moral dimension to secular politics. So this is a, this is a point to note that one of the primary things that religion is offering a whole lot of people is a moral dimension, okay. a system of morality. So a simple question for all of you, do I need religion to be moral? Why or why not? What do you all think? Uh, Khaled, it looks like you're speaking, but uh, you're on mute. And by the way, so so Khaled is, is a person who, mashallah, is very participatory in class. And so I'm inviting Khaled to continue being more, uh, being very participatory. But I'm also inviting all the rest of you to talk too. But go ahead, Khaled. Yeah. So the, the, the question is, uh, yes, no. Yes, in a way that um, I think that at least Really, I believe that the, the, every human being really borns with this, this moral compass. Mm -hmm. but I know it's interpreted differently uh, by different scholars, but the, the question that, you know, are we really born blank or was there any sense of morality? So we say that for Alhamaha, Fadurah, Taqwaha, right? We take that, that when the root uh, uh, comes translate in it plus, for everybody. Translate what you yeah, just recited. Yeah. So the, so we, uh, that we uh, revealed or we uh, inspired the, the ruh uh, with the good and the bad of it, right? Uh, and then later it says, you know, that the, the one who keeps that moral compass intact is indeed really successful and the one who lost it is really gone. So, the, so, so we're born, you know, with this moral compass, which later on that due to our own uh, at least with the quranic uh, aspects that it gets corroded you know when we commit sins and other things like that so but when something comes from the outside uh, you know the, the messengers brings you know these messages or you know uh, by looking at the outside world and things really you know we can really adjust you know this moral compass again so this is one side uh, or the religious point of view. I mean, at least this is what I think that really we, we do not really need uh, religion 
to to tell you that you know why telling a lie is bad, uh, why breaking promises is bad, why hitting somebody is bad, you know why stealing. I mean, look at you know the way you know the we to these people who are really just cheating a little bit, you know, in the business. And when somebody does this to them, and they don't they don't like that. So that means that really the you know these things are in there. Yeah, uh, I, would agree. I, I want to jump in. Uh, uh, um, could you please also give us your name? Yes, this is Mahan. Oh, mashallah. Dr. Mahan, please. Well, I'm, I'm on the phone, so I apologize. I can't use the camera. No, but glad to have you. Please uh, share. <laughs> you know, just um, uh, on the question of do you need religion to be moral? Quick answer is I don't think so, but you need religion or some kind of you know, something beyond simply what you can access through a secular plane epistemically to ground your morality philosophically if you want to do that. I don't know if that's helpful. That's, uh, but I also have one quick... Yeah. So just uh, so one, if I can translate quick, your first point. Or go, or go ahead, share sure. your, your one quick and then, then I'll try to... No, no, do, translate that and then I have one very quick second point. Okay, so... So essentially, if I, what, I, what I understand you're saying is that what religion also gives you is some frame of accountability um, um, or some system in which there is consequence to, to morality or lack of morality. Yeah? Yeah, I, I, that includes, it includes that. Okay. Um, but I think when you, ask, when, you, yeah, when you ask someone who's working outside of any religious framework, a theological framework, uh, an atheist, for example, and there are many moral atheists, um, they'll have different reasons. And ultimately, I don't think they'll be able to justify their morality through the philosophical you know, systems that they use to live out the rest of their lives. Mm. Explain that point. Yeah. You know, uh, so, so if you don't have religion, right, and you claim to be moral, you can have someone else who can claim to be immoral, and philosophically, you won't be able to adjudicate between the two using uh, their uh, own systems. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, I think it's a very, very strong point. So, 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 so translate your first yeah. one, or, or did you have another one? No, go ahead. And then I have another one, okay, but so, you can translate this so, one. So, <laughs> so, 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 the first part of your argument, uh, where I was saying that uh, I'm understanding, you're saying that uh, religion provides a system of accountability, but you're saying it's deeper than that. That you're saying religion provides this whole system, which includes what we'd call that, morality. That if you violate the morality, right. you're going to have consequences, not just in your own accountability, right? Second big point you right. made is that uh, it is very hard, if not impossible, to truly justify morality using only philosophy because someone else can have a system of quote-unquote morality that completely contradicts the first person and philosophically it's just as strong yes okay you got a, another point after that yeah so just a, an, an earlier thing that you mentioned when you were reading then you know to use your own sort of uh, the knowledge that's available to you in your own cultural or historical milieu, to use that to interpret revelation is a weak position to stand on. Um, th 
one can argue that even revelation itself uses the perspective that's pretty much prevailing in its own context when it's being revealed. Mm-hmm. And the example of this was, you know, Maulana Maududi, who says, yeah, scientifically, we know that, you know, that the sun, we, we move around the sun, but the Quran was speaking according to how the people were seeing uh, the sun, not how things actually are. So there's perspective built into revelation also. We can't escape that. And we have to use our own, you know, experiences in order to continue to interpret revelation in every age. Well, I mean, at that point, I think uh, uh, I would agree. So, so to translate, uh, make sure I understand your point. Uh, you're saying that uh, 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 that we all have our subjectivity, and the Quran. Uh, a big way that the Quran is speaking is through our subjectivity, and meaning right. that the Quran, uh, right from the start, uh, for the Arabs, is speaking through the language of the structures of Arab poetry, through right. uh, starting out at least how they specifically looked at the world. And then right. to even support your point further, uh, when we have the conversations Ibrahim alayhi salam has, uh, when he says, when he's trying to uh, argue with the people through their logic, he's saying, you right. know, I believe that the sun is the, the sun is God. No, nope, that doesn't work. Right. What about the stars? Right. Nope. Yeah, that is... Uh, and, yeah. Go ahead. No, and so just, um, I'll stop with this, um, and then you can carry on. The example of, you know, the embryo, and then using that as a weak foundation uh, for your faith, I understand that, and I actually am sympathetic to that. But at the same time, the issue is how could you do otherwise? You have to work with how the world is being viewed uh, in your particular, you know, age. So that's mm-hmm. an interesting uh, problem. But uh, mm-hmm. thanks. That's it for me. Very good, Mashallah. And, and, and so, so for, for those who are also catching up, I made, I made a provocative point at the beginning that if the foundation of your faith is that the Quran speaks, uh, is that the Quran talks about the embryo, I'm suggesting very, very directly that, uh, that your faith is, is weak. And, and, and so what Dr. Mahan is raising is how can we start uh, with uh, uh, otherwise? So I'm going to modify my language to make the same point. If that's the foundation and the only foundation of your faith, that I'm still suggesting that your faith is weak. If that is your doorway into revelation, then that's a very good doorway. What do you think, Dr. Mahan? That, that solves it. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Very good. Any, any uh, other thoughts? Uh, so the, the, the original question is, can we have morality without religion? And it seems as though, uh, so Brother Khalid said, uh, yes, um, uh, essentially, uh, but you can be corrupted, and so, for example, yeah. religion helps you purify. And then this is this is sorry, this ahead. is Mohsen. Sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just Please. just kind of to to maybe put a, a little bit of uh, a label around what uh, you know the point that Dr. Mahan made, and I think uh, uh, Dr. Khalid made as well. Uh, I think uh, the the distinction maybe sometimes that can be drawn is um, subjective versus objective morality, right? And uh, I think what we say is that. Uh, objective morality uh, needs some grounding, like Dr. Mahan said, and, and p- potentially revelation or scripture is that grounding uh, versus uh, without that, then you really have 
uh, morality that can be, you know, it's very time and place dependent or person to person dependent. And that's where this notion of subjective morality comes I think from. that's also an interesting point because uh, uh, I'm going to use, instead of using the word subjective for that, I'm going to use contextual. What do you think? That uh, in some cases, uh, so in just about every case, <clears throat> telling the truth is, is what you're supposed to do instead of telling a lie. But there may be cases where telling a lie is actually better than telling the truth. Uh, Mohsen, what do you think if I change your word from subjective to contextual? Or, or yeah, I... yeah, I think I think that works, and I think even with like with objective morality, we start finding uh, uh, areas right where people can have different interpretations as well. Like with the Quran, sometimes we we can derive, uh, you know, at least uh, when it comes to the details, uh, uh, we we can get into some different notions of morality as well. So, uh, so I think, yeah, that's perfectly valid. There's no fixed definition, of course. <laughs> yeah. But on the, same, what, on the same time, what is the definition of morality? Uh, I mean, that is, that is very subjective too, because um, we are living in this time and my viewpoint of the morality is entirely different than your viewpoint of the morality. If you don't have any measure um, view or religion or anything, which can be actually give us the framework or, you know, like, a measurement for those systems. And that's why, you know, in this book on the page number five, he mentioned about the three examples about uh, the France and British and, and America, that's society is secular, public is secular and so forth. So, so I mean that if you're living in that time, who is going to be the judge and how are we gonna, how are we gonna measure uh, the morality? Mm -hmm. So, uh, hey, uh, Safan, are you there? Can you hear us? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, can you give us a, a difference between morality and ethics? Uh, morality and ethics? Yeah. It's defined differently by different philosophers. Um... Anything, and I, he had no idea I was gonna ask him this, so he has to think back. Or why don't you tell us some of the different types of ethics? So in terms of ethics, different ethical systems would be, if we're going back to Aristotle, virtue ethics, which is more about whether your actions convey certain virtues from, from uh, like courage or uh, kindness, so on and so forth. Um, there's also, if you're going to Immanuel Kant, you have deontological ethics, which is very, very rules-based. It's something is moral if you would make it a prescribed rule for everyone. Uh, if you go to utilitarian ethics, then something is ethical if it maximizes the good on net. And there's different subcategories of that. Um, and then I think those are the major ones. I think I'm missing one, but th those are the ones off the top of my head. Where would you put like uh, ethics that are coming from religion? Um, so it depends on the religion, of course, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> different religions have different uh, ethical systems. Mm -hmm. And so, so, so thank you for that. And so, so Malaha, to answer your question, uh, uh, this is related to Mahan's point about how uh, looking through just a philosophical lens, one is no stronger than the other. Uh, I would suggest this comes down to whom, to whom do you give the authority in determining what is, what is your morality? And, and so if you give the authority to that thing that we call Islam, then that becomes your authority for determining what is your system of morality? What is your system of ethics? For our purposes, we're not gonna distinguish as much between the difference, but essentially, uh, when we're speaking here, we're talking about principles or rules of conduct, principles or rules of behavior. So, yeah. so that, that uh, means... Uh, what am I? Yeah, uh, go ahead, uh, Dr. Oh. Mahan, and then back to Malahat. 
Yeah, just to uh, you know, add the theological component to these ethical systems. The uh, the one that there's one that's called theological volunteerism or divine command ethics, where it's, you're using revelation as your source for what is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's rational entanglement of that with you know other ways of thinking of ethics. But uh, when you throw revelation into the mix, you get a whole other kind of source mm-hmm. of, uh, of virtue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is uh, essentially what I, was, what I was referring to in terms of like the religious source. Uh, but I couldn't remember the, the, the terminology. So, so thanks for that. Uh, Dr. Malahat, you had a follow-up. Yeah, so, so what, I, what I collect, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the religion is um, a framework. Or a framework. A, a framework for judging mechanisms. So, so if I, I missed the Khalid point, but if Khalid said that morality can be, but that's like, um, I think Sofan said about the ethical framework, right? So, but the, what is the morality framework? Or they like, or they can just interchange to each other. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, right now, um, I'm not going to get into the difference of morality versus ethics. Right now, for as far as we're concerned, we're going to think of them as the same thing. Yeah, and and so, so the overall suggestion that I'm making, which is I think consistent with everyone's thing, is yes, you can be a moral person without any religion. And if we want to defend it through Islam, then we would use the example that, that, uh, that Brother Khaled is making through, through the idea of, of fitrah, that everyone is born with an innate system, an innate purity, that then I'm suggesting is resulting in, by default, a morally upright person. But even if that is a person is corrupted, the needs of society generally lean towards some degree of ethical behavior. Order in society necessitates and, and enforces or coerces some sort of ethical behavior. So, um, it could be uh, holistically a corrupt ethics, like when we speak of honor among thieves, the thieves themselves might have their own system of ethics and such. But the point is that uh, uh, what uh, Talal Asad is suggesting is one of the common ways, or what we're what I'm referring, is one of the one of the common ways that religion still has relevance in people's lives, is to provide a moral dimension to secular politics, or the feeling that is providing a moral dimension to secular politics, and then moving forward. Uh, so this sentence again: the resurgence of religion has been welcomed by many as a means of supplying what they see as a needed moral dimension to secular politics and environmental concerns. Uh, actually, let me finish the paragraph first. It has been regarded by others with alarm as a symptom of growing irrationality and intolerance in everyday life. So, so we've argued that you can have morality without religion. Uh, I think, would anyone disagree that we can say they can also have religion without morality? What do you think? No. How are we defining religion? So I'm basically saying I can claim to be a religious Muslim and believe myself to be a religious Muslim. And some, someone else looks at me and says that is the most corrupt person I've met. It's possible, yes. 
Any other thoughts? Every day. Every day. Every day. Yeah. And and uh, 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 but Sarah, were you speaking? Were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just saying it's not possible. Not possible. Explain why. Uh, I guess the basic understanding of of religion to me is that it does provide you uh, a distinction between right and wrong. And if it doesn't provide you with that, then uh, is you are just like uh, worshiping yourself or something. Okay. Uh, I don't think that contradicts what I'm saying, though. Uh, uh, I think what you're basically saying is that is that person is not a good Muslim. You know. So let me rephrase it. Uh, what would have to have to happen for me to no longer validly be considered to be a Muslim? Uh, suppose I lie, I cheat, I steal, I kill. Am I still officially a Muslim? Yes. Yeah, why? Yes. It, because officially... I That's have not... individual. Yeah, Those are the individual. Yeah, those are the individual, you know, uh, and could be it, it could be a circumstances base. Okay, but let's say uh, no, no, well, I, I kill for no reason, lie for no reason, cheat for no reason, just because I'm bored. The only way to step out of the dean is to you have to uh, you have to openly declare that you you have to violate the aqidah. You have to openly declare that you don't believe. For example, uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam was the last prophet. Mm -hmm. If you openly declare these things, this, you step out of, uh, you know, Islam. And so, some, any form of uh, uh, abridgment or violation of the articles will step you out. But you can, of course, sin and still be considered a Muslim. As long as you say, la ilaha illallah, and testify that Muhammad is the, uh, sallallahu alayhi is the last messenger, you're still a Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, question. Is I there some... Sorry. Uh, uh, go ahead, Safan, and then whoever was going to speak next. I guess, uh, isn't there some debate as to what exactly the, the core uh, theology is that you have to not believe in before you're declared as to be Muslim or not Muslim? There, um, there is some debate about that, isn't there? I mean, there's debate about pretty much everything, even if people want to pretend that there's no sure. debate. But um, uh, are you for, uh, speaking about something in particular? I mean, from my understanding, there were different standards. One is, of course, just the Shahada. As long as you believe in the Shahada, then uh, you're Muslim. Then I think there's other requirements to draw. I think from the from whichever Hadith mentions the five pillars, if you don't mm -hmm. believe in the obligation of the five pillars, then you wouldn't be considered a Muslim, so on and so ah, forth. Okay. So, so in terms of Aqidah, you know, that which we call creed, and what is the idea of, of, of creed? It's uh, if you believe, if you claim to believe in the Shahada, what are consequent beliefs that, uh, that you would have to believe in? And by have to, I'm saying, you know, by a big population saying that you have to, I'm cautious against using the word consensus, as consensus requires its own definition. And so, so level one is you believe the Shahada, right? Level two would then mean that you believe those things that we call Iman Mufassal, Iman Mujmal, right? You believe in Allah, with all of his attributes and his commands and aspire to, to fulfill his commands. And then you believe in the angels, the books, the messengers, the, the divine decree, day of judgment, rising from the dead, uh, divine decree, good or bad. Uh, and um, I left out something there. Level three would then be getting into some more particulars of, of belief. 
And so how far somebody wants to take it, yeah, um, they might determine that uh, uh, if, you, if this bullet point in level three, which I'm not detailing, if you don't believe, then some people say you're no longer Muslim. But, but at least uh, for our purposes, we'll say that if someone does not openly contradict in terms of statements, the Shahada, the overwhelming common opinion in our society, our Muslim society, is that that person is still Muslim, uh, even if we don't want to recognize their Muslimness. Uh, and so, so what we're saying is that as a religion based on creed, action is actually secondary to belief, uh, claimed belief. So, well, there's so a action might cause all types of destruction. Yes. Uh, there's a question po posted by Obed Pai um, on the, in the chat. That, yes. uh, Obed Pai, could you please uh, 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 jump in? I think he just left for the prayer. Obed, are you still there? I think he just left for the Isha prayer, but um, that oh. was a question that, you know, yes, if only if someone kills by legitimizing innocent killing. Okay, so, so if they're legitimizing innocent killing, okay, the killing of an innocent, uh, there uh, is an argument uh, that certain behaviors uh, do count as kufr, right? Uh, but we can wait for him to come back to, uh, to express and show up. So, Umar, I have a question. Yes, sir. So can we uh, really have, I mean, what is the experience? Uh, hey, is Brother Khalid breaking, uh, breaking up or is it, is it me that's breaking up? No, no, Khalid. 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 Okay, let me, so uh, if, if a Muslim, if somebody claims to be a Muslim, yeah. say a Muslim, on what criterion that others can say that you're not Muslim? Mm -hmm. So, for example, to give you an example, that if I, there are two people, let's say it's Umar and Khalid, okay. uh, I have a point of view about some things, and I am really doing, uh, you know, bringing the, my uh, basis from the Quran and, you know, the established or the authentic Sunnah or the Hadith. And I'm doing some real understanding them in a different way. You are understanding them in a different way. The, the argument that I'm really taking towards, for example, Shias, right? The, they have this aqidah um, of imamat and other things like that. And as we know that really the, uh, a great number of uh, Muslim scholars and here, I mean, they declare them that they are kafir and this and that, uh, but they don't. Similarly, the, uh, the Ahmadiyya, the Qadiyani movement, right? They, uh, uh, they, if you, if you, there's a lot of uh, things that are said on behalf of them, but really if you sit with somebody, they still believe Rasulullah the last messenger, and then they consider the, the Ahmad as some way, some extension, you know, as, you know, some uh, like of some of our Sufis, they fly in the air and they have ways to find the truth, you know, by doing certain Riyadhar and Mushak, you know, those sort of things. So the question is that, how do we, uh, if, if your argument from the Quran, and I am also really bringing my argument from the Quran, right? For example, I mean, we had a very, very good example today in the session that, you know, somebody said a question. And one of the scholarly persons said that, well, you know, uh, the Ibrahim uh, uh, asked a question to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, you know, the kaifatuhil mawta, that, you know, how you give life. And then Allah asked me back, awalam tu'min, meaning that he's checking his question, you know, that he doesn't have to answer everything. But on the other side, 
when when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, you know, inni ja'ilun fil ardi khalifa, that I'm going to really, you know, create a wise giant on earth, the angels question to Allah. I mean, who are angels as compared to, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is deciding something and angels saying that, you know, atajialufiya, are you going to, you know, place in that my yafsudu, you know, who's going to cause corruption and bloodshed. So my thing is that one person takes an argument saying that, okay, well, you know, people should not question and really the, or the, you know, open questions should not happen. The other person may really take the argument of this, of the angel say that, you know, you can. So how do we define that really? The, uh, because this is one of the reasons that we have so much sects and sectarianism and, you know, calling each other, you know, kafir and whatnot. So who gets to decide mm-hmm. that you're Muslim or not? Okay. Sorry for the detailed explanation. No, that's not, no. Again, all of you, I encourage, please, uh, all of you speak as much as and participate as much. One, one quick Go for on it. that. So um, just that there's so much here <laughs> to unpack and discuss. Khalid Bhai, Assalamualaikum. Nice to hear your, your voice. You, the only thing that I would, um, that I would ask uh, you and all of us to consider, just how one of the questions was framed, where it says many Muslims consider Shiites as kafir. Mm-hmm. But if you were to just change one term and say many Sunnis consider the Shiites as kafir, you see the mm-hmm. difference in implication mm-hmm. and yep. even assumption. Yeah. So, yeah. Although yeah. I, thought, uh, I thought Khalid said many scholars. No, he said many Muslims. And then okay. scholars was there too, but there was one specific okay. here that I picked up on. <laughs> Okay, nice, nice. Okay, uh, any thoughts uh, to, to Khaled's question? How do we determine? So, so I said I, that... I think I, I like to add what Khaled is asking even yeah. goes further for this, the third level of Imaniyat or Aqeedah, like Miraj, you know, mm-hmm. talking about the Sahaba, bringing up the, the procedural or discipline issues of Amir Mavia, choosing him for Yazid. I mean, all those things is is some of the hardliner or I don't want to say hardliner, but I, I, some of the some of the orthodox mindset not allow to even go into those areas and those questions kind of boiled up and then you know it's caused more anxiety and stress to those people who want to think and rationalize those thought process. Okay, I didn't understand that point. Could you explain further? So so, so you know if 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 we need to allow the discussion on those points is easier. To get to a conclusion, but some of um, but some of the hardline scholars is not even allow us to question yeah, areas and says yeah. don't talk about it. You know, don't go in that areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, uh, in terms of of, of Khalid's question, uh, there were two parts there, right? The second part was uh, just about being allowed to ask questions in at all, and that's similar to to what you just addressed, And the first part is how do we how do we determine uh, who is allowed to determine who is Muslim and not. Regarding the second question, uh, I think it's only a minority of the population that opposes questions. Uh, uh, but the point is, uh, whether Ibrahim al-Islam asks questions or not, whether uh, the angels ask questions or not, I mean, it's a very common principle that questions are half of, of, of knowledge. And, and so uh, that is... Uh, a necessary thing. The challenge, however, is is someone ready to accept the consequences to their question? Is someone ready to accept the the answer to the question? So we also have the caution in the Quran 
against asking questions where you don't want the answer, right? This is in Surah Al-Ma'idah. Uh, and, and, and so on the one hand, we have uh, the Sunnah of angels, the Sunnah of, of a major prophet asking questions. The other hand, we have a warning against asking questions. And of course, we have the famous case of Bani Israel asking Musa salam, all the questions about slaughtering a cow. And so if we put both of those together, uh, it doesn't seem that there's any prohibition on asking questions, but there is a caution that make sure your question is something you want the answer to, as opposed to something idle. Regarding the first part, uh, any other thoughts? How do we determine <laughs> who is and who is not a Muslim? And what I'll suggest, mm -hmm. you know, as we, so as we do that discussion is that there's the, there's the real answer and then there's the theoretical answer. Uh, Iqbal, you were speaking. I, I think it's Basir. Oh, Basir, were you speaking? I'm sorry. Uh, I guess the, uh, uh, you can look at it this way. Uh, when, when is it a problem uh, for us to, to know that, you know, somebody's a Muslim or not? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's in a community, you know, if you're living alone, nobody cares, right? Um, so if you are in a society, uh, just like you treat your other problems that, you know, to what uh, limit are you going to let somebody, uh, you know, just uh, talk bad about somebody else? So, you know, who determines that? And that is, you know, a group of people. I mean, you give a consent to, uh, you know, your elected people. Um, so basically, that's how, you know, you, you s legally say somebody is or not. Right, you give a consent, or you, as a society, decide. Uh, so that's how you would do it. But in reality, I mean, uh, uh, only Allah knows that, like the real iman. But the legal, on the legal aspect, that's how you would say. Yeah, and and that's essentially, uh, if I understood Basir correctly, then uh, that's the real point. Who determines? It just comes down to who has the power to coerce. And so if you uh, are, are living in a village that has one authority and someone comes along with different ideas, then, uh, then those are the people who have the power to, to determine who is, who is not a Muslim. If you're living in urban, suburban America, the only power you have to coerce might be the power to affect someone's reputation or move them, push them out of your, your community. And, and so, so the answer, the real answer to the question is it just comes down to who has the power to, to, to coerce uh, who is in and who is out. So when you have a government, then uh, the government has the, the, uh, the power to coerce. And then who has the power to influence the government will then determine who has that power to, to, to coerce. So when you have a, a state-affiliated government, whether we're talking about Pakistan, whether we're talking about uh, Israel, whether we're talking about Iran, whether we're talking about the Vatican, then they're going to determine who is in, who is not in. Yeah. Uh, when we're talking about a community of people in, in America, then it just comes down to who are you going to pray behind, who are you not going to pray behind. That becomes an individual choice regardless of how many people tell you to turn left you know, you, you choose which way to go. And, and it also comes down to who will you marry, who will you not marry? 
And then who will you accept as the leader of your Islamic organization? And who will you not accept? And so then it becomes individual authority. That's the real answer to the question. The theoretical answer to the question is that we would say in a Sunni framework, there's, here's the consensus and such. Uh, but the, the point is that just like uh, when we get into the particulars of some things, that uh, works more as a slogan than actual practice. Uh, Mustafa, you were going to say something. Well, I can't hear you. Uh, your microphone might be. Looking here. Oh, we just heard it for a second. I think it's having a mic problem. So we can come down and. Yeah. Uh, so, Omar, so, can I. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, well, I mean, yeah, I think Mosab typed it into the. Uh, the chat box. As long as someone believes in the oneness of Allah and the mess in the prophethood of Muhammad, they can be considered Muslim. Peace be upon him. Uh, I think most of us in this in this group would probably agree with that. But the point is, <clears throat> if someone adds on to it, would we still consider them Muslim? Then we might have different opinions in this group. But really, the authority comes down to whoever has power to to uh, to exert their their opinion. Malahat. Uh, so I'll go back to the, the ethics and morality portion mm -hmm. of it. Um, so I think this, um, in this, the book we are reading, uh, he mentioned a term called secular ethics mm -hmm. and he touched upon it. And he said the secular ethics in the majority of them is aligned with the, with the religious ethic. Mm -hmm. So is that answer the Khalid first question that ethics and morality can be happening without a religion? Well, I mean, I think um, it, it's consistent with the point. Where we find a difference, for example, is where is American law heading? American law is basically heading more and more to the point that if you're not hurting someone else, then you can do whatever you want, right? And, and what we often find in religion in particular is that there are some crimes where there's no immediate apparent victim, okay? So an easy example is gay marriage, right? So American law is shifting more and more to accepting marriage equality, accepting gay marriage, right? Overwhelming majority Muslim opinion, if not unanimity, but we're just gonna say overwhelming majority Muslim opinion is marriage is man and woman, right? Uh, the first group would say you're not hurting anybody. You know? uh, and so there's no crime being committed. And, and then the religious side is saying, okay, crime or not, this is not allowed, even if officially no one's being hurt, right? A different example would be what are often called victimless crimes where both people are knowingly participating. So forget marriage for a second, if we turn to prostitution, right? Okay, no religion says prostitution is okay. But uh, there are places in the United States where it's legal. And, and one argument is that both people are adults entering, uh, uh, knowing exactly what they're getting into. Yeah. And so religion will often say that there's some uh, scenarios where there's no uh, apparent victim, but something is still forbidden. Uh, Dr. Can, uh, yeah. yeah, I just want to just complicate that just a little bit. I Go mean, on. I see see the point uh, which is very interesting 
but it, it, I think it presumes like a purely uh, liberal individual view of, uh, of society uh, when we're speaking of victim. So mm-hmm. I'll give you another example. If you run a red light, there's nobody else there. Mm-hmm. You didn't hurt anyone. But a cop is there. He can still get you. Because if you let that become permissive, that act, then it harms society. Now, if you up and there in that case of running that red light, I didn't harm anybody mm-hmm. in that particular act. But in the broader legal framework and understanding of social goods, that would be a crime. And so if you bring a moral perspective to social relations, then the same principle should translate. So it all of, a lot of this presumes, uh, you know, has presumptions um, when we're talking about who's a victim, who are agents, and who are principals in a mm-hmm. society. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, a, that's a, a fair correction. That would go back to my previous point related to how do you determine who's Muslim or not? Uh, there is always going to be a coercive authority somewhere, right? And so the example you're giving is there is going to be a coercive authority in terms of what is law, what is not law, and related to the whole question of order. But now that's, that's an important correction. Um, okay. Somebody else was speaking. Harith? Uh, yeah, just, just on the point that uh, Brother Mullah just alluded to. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for really answering, you know, the previous questions, at least uh, allowing, you know, uh, to be discussed. But I think that generally, really, the, when the, the issue comes about ethics and morality. I mean, my at least my understanding was that uh, the morality is mo- mo- morals are something which are really uh, found common across religion or across nations and different people. You know, the, for example, you know, some basic morality, you know, telling the truth, you know, doing those sort of things, which are practiced by uh, a majority, a great number of people compared to ethics, which are really external. So, for example, uh, I remember Dr. Mahan back in the day, I don't know if you remember, really giving this one example of, you know, uh, a girl in, in, uh, uh, in the Western society here looks at you and, you know, passes on a, a beautiful smile. Or somebody just, you know, uh, walking in a, in a short dress, right? Uh, is it really more moral or ethic? At, you know, the, it may be considered bad, really, you know, in, in some other countries because, the, the ethics here are really, I mean, that's not considered bad, right? But again, the, there are some limits where morals and ethics will cross each other. But I think ethics are more like some external things that really are imposed on you. They can, they can also be from religion or maybe from other authority, but really they're external and morality is something that is really internal and practiced by common, uh, common human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that gets into uh, distinguishing what is morality and ethics. And uh, the way you've distinguished, uh, Brother Khaled, is one of the common ways. Uh, but I am still suggesting for our purposes for now, we're just going to keep them both as the same. You know, okay. whether we're, we're talking about something internal or something external. Uh, but uh, so, so overall, yeah, the, the, the point we're arguing is that, yeah, you can have morality and ethics, or you can be an upright person without being uh, a person knowing anything of religion. And then you can also be a corrupt person and still officially be a person in, in, in uh, the religious community. 
Uh, and finishing off this paragraph, the question of secularism has emerged as an object of academic argument of practical dispute. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. If anything is agreed upon, it is that the straightforward narrative of progress from the religious to the secular is no longer acceptable. So from our perspective, a Muslim perspective, how would you define what is progress? So from the perspective within a common secular lens, moving that, that arrow that I drew from Catholicism to Protestant to the Enlightenment to science and to so forth and so on is part of the march of progress. Uh, let me add to this that often there's two different schools uh, of the theory of history. One is the, the modern or progressive lens looking at history. The other one is commonly the traditional lens of history. The modern, the progressive lens says that the future is better. Okay. And the closer we get to the future, the better everything is. The traditional lens, and I think we've actually talked about this in the Tanzim days quite a bit, but the traditional lens is that the further you get away from the first generation, the worse things are. So how do we look at history? How do we look at the advancement, uh, for lack of a better term, or the movement or the evolution of humanity? Worse and worse, better and better. What do you think? Depends. On? How you look at it? Because how, that's, that's I, the I, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm still stuck with the, the previous one. Like the, what happened with the core political principle will contradict the core religious principle. Give me an example. So like you just mentioned about the homosexuality and all those things. Yeah. So, and some of the religious, like even for the, the three major religion that is not acceptable. So, I mean, how you can able to, how you can address that contradict and come up with uh, with the ethical and moral uh, values and draw without any confrontation or conflict. Okay. How we can do that? Any thoughts? Whether we use that example, whether we use LGBT, LGBT as an example or something else. Uh, yeah, but then that comes down to a, a, a personal view of what you think is right or wrong, correct? Because uh, like you said, there is a segment of Muslims that are making the counter argument uh, in terms of uh, sexual mores. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> and, and Professor Mahan Mirza did an excellent job in his cosmology lecture about uh, debating of the perspectives and mm -hmm. uh, bringing the perspectival uh, view of Islam into focus. So, Based on that, I mean, like Mahan, I mean, uh, Malahat and I, we can say, okay, uh, you know, homosexuality is wrong, blah, blah, blah. But then uh, uh, somebody like uh, Siraj Kruger can, um, can make uh, a counter argument too. So, mm -hmm. okay. So then going back to our, our general, these general frameworks of looking at the evolution of, of humanity. Is it an overall improvement or an overall Yeah, so for, so for Malahat and me, it is a decline. And for yeah. Suraj Kugel, it would be an improvement. 
Okay. So, mm-hmm. a- a- another interesting thing came out of that is that you know, Islam says that you know is a universal religion, mm-hmm. and what we are talking about here is the time and space concept and and having a, a localized problems and localized solutions and how that how we can able to just you know merge those together and come into a consensus mm-hmm. or, or a tolerant level i would say mm-hmm. not consensus even that i think you're touching on um the conclusion of this part of the discussion but uh in your thoughts are things improving are things degrading uh i apologize if this is maybe a uh, half baked idea Jump in. but i mean okay pretty much everything is being said is half baked so don't worry um so but you're I, welcome I think, to, to be a baker I, I think you have to consider two elements of it right one is that from a muslim perspective right there are certain aims of justice of, of the sharia right to a certain extent and you could make the argument that over time many of those have actually improved um I think you can make an argument, right, that um, Islamic law would see the elimination of slavery as meritorious, not necessarily mm-hmm. obligated, but meritorious, right? So the mm-hmm. fact that we live in a world without slavery would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in many ways, you do see many of these aims progress in the modern world. But in an epistemological sense, they're coming from not necessarily Islamic sources. So if you go back to the time of the prophet, which is usually where our tradition starts from, right? Mm-hmm. There are people who maybe that society may not have necessarily implemented these aims to the full extent possible, but they were doing so from an explicitly Islamic perspective, right? Yeah. The decisions they were making were from an explicitly, the explicit aim of serving God. So you have the kind of larger effectiveness a- angle of progress and the um, individual, why are we doing it aspect of progress? And I would say one has maybe increased with time, one has decreased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, so, uh, what, uh, so, to, so to translate what you're saying is uh, that one has decreased. Which one has decreased? I would say certainly the idea that we are doing things now in service of a certain idea of justice, which is serving God. Mm-hmm. That perspective maybe has declined with time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that so the, the specific objectives may have increased. Okay, okay. got it. Any other thoughts? as we finish off today's discussion. Uh, I just want to say that if Obad Bhai came back and he'd like to have ask his question. Sure. Obad, you there? Yes, not. Sure. So, uh, I we... have one, one parting comment. Hello? Yes. Yeah, I think uh, the loss of concubines is a definitely poor scenario. And I'm wondering if after he muted himself, is Dr. Kazi laughing? Or... <laughs> no. Well, it's definitely true, correct? I mean, uh, if, if you look at it in a serious manner also, uh, the amount of extramarital affairs is on the rise. Yet, uh, the institution of concubinage has been, uh, is, has been deemed immoral or unethical. So, figure it out. Okay, so we'll wait for Dr. Kazi to... to... Uh, let us know what his concubinage situation is and how that affected his family. In any case, back to all the rest of us. Uh, so how do we commonly address right and wrong behavior in our tradition? It's through law, isn't it? It's through action. 
not through theology. It's like the point we made earlier that from an Athena perspective, a person might be doing a thousand different sins uh, and they're still officially Muslim. Doesn't mean they're a good Muslim. Uh, But what is considered to be allowed action uh, is uh, in terms of deliberation, it's through the result, it's focused only on action, not on intention not on, uh, on the person's uh, belief system. See what I'm saying? So whether they're talking about a matter related to marriage, whether they're talking about a matter related to, to concubines, whether we're uh, um, talking about whatever matter, that our lens is not uh, usually morality to determine what is right and wrong behavior. Our lens is usually law. Yeah. In contrast, for example, to Christianity, in Christianity, there is some system of canon law, but often the decisions are made through theology. Yeah. And so it's a very different philosophical system. And so, so the question, is this a modern or progressive or a traditional outlook in history? We're saying in terms of time and place, in your situation, it's irrelevant. Yeah. We're just addressing actions and we have a system of law to try to figure out answers to questions but it becomes partially secular in the sense that it's voluntary um, participation. Meaning if you have, you know, two people, same sex who come along in a marriage and say we're Muslim, what power does anyone, uh, uh, for example, in this room have to say no, except just to say no. You have no power to stop it. Or if someone comes along and says, okay, I am a Sunni and I'm mar- mar- marrying someone from the nation of Islam. I'm a Sunni man marrying a woman from the nation of Islam who believes that Elijah Muhammad is a messenger. Yeah. Uh, what power does anyone have to say no? Yeah. And, and so the secular era is taking away a lot of that power unless you have community coercive power. You basically say we're shunning them, we're ostracizing them. And, and so where does the secular apply? A lot, of it, a lot of it applies in taking away power from the hands of the religious community. Any thoughts? And and as we go through this introduction, we're adding more and more to our to our understanding of what is secular. And what we're focusing on today is basically who who has authority. And so we're basically saying it used to be historically that the authority was in the hands of the of the people who had the army. So, uh, so Umar, speaking. Oh yeah, Iqbal, go ahead. Or who, who just go call it? Yeah. yeah. So, so in other words, we're saying is that the uh, epistemological uh, basis, you know, in in, in a secular uh, society, will be really entirely different. You know how you gain your knowledge and how you justify your actions at the end of the day, mm-hmm. versus really the, the the religious argument where uh, you have Daksab uh, used to say, right, that you are a horse tied to a uh, fifty feet or hundred feet. Mm-hmm. rope that you really uh, at some point the, 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 the religion 
is going to come and say, okay, well, you know, these are the hadood, you know, had the, that's the limit. And, you know, beyond that, you know, it's, it's the etada uh, that you really, you know, don't, don't transgress. Mm-hmm. So my question is that, so wouldn't that be really uh, 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 fruitful that they, to distinguish between the sin and a crime mm-hmm. means that you know the when when does a sin become a jurum, a crime that mm-hmm. becomes a punishable mm-hmm. act? So the for example the uh, if I'm not fasting, I mean that's religious thing, right? Mm-hmm. The um, you know Ramzan is coming, you know you're gonna fast. If I am not, if I don't fast, so that's I'm that's a sin, you know, in the sight of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and I'm, I'm responsible. But mm-hmm. is it also a crime? Because so, the crime is then punishable by the state, by, you know, whatever. So is it a relevant discussion to this context or really is it, does it make any sense? Does it make sense to, to define mm-hmm. when a sin really is categorized into really or why we punish people? Mm-hmm. Like somebody mentioned earlier that you know, two people, you said that two people cohabit with their own will, they're adult. And why should they be punished? I would say that because that's creating uh, mm-hmm. anarchy in the society that what happened that if we have, you know, a child who's born, nobody's taking responsibility, mm-hmm. that child has really, you know, um, it can, will have no really moral ethics and those sort of things. Um, so when does really a sin become really mm-hmm. escalated to a level of crime that way it mm-hmm. becomes like a punishable thing? Mm-hmm. Because in that context... So, Omar, one more thing, just before, yeah. uh, as an extension of uh, Brother Khaled's uh, question and uh, your statement, isn't could your statement also not be construed as uh, making a case for the primacy of power? That is power that will determine uh, what's acceptable, what's sin, what's... Uh, That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. I'm saying that uh, in the secular era, but not limited to the secular era, to, to add to Khaled's question. Okay, give a simple example. Uh, in the history of, of Islam, prior to Iran and Saudi Arabia, was the government telling women that they had to ever cover their hair? Uh, I don't know of any example in the entire history of 1400 years until the 20th century, until the second half of the 20th century, right? And so, uh, what I'm suggesting is that one, at the collective level, power determines what is right or wrong, which means one power might say that sin equals crime. Another power might say these sins are also crimes. Another power will say these are crimes, doesn't matter if they're sins or not. Yeah. And And so then... The other side of it is what I conform to is voluntarily up to me. So if I believe you're not supposed to do X, Y, Z things, that's my voluntary, uh, in dunya, it's my voluntary choice to, to embrace it or not. And what might affect me might be family factors, cultural factors, social factors, uh, that might affect my decision on how I dress, how I behave, what words do I use, what actions do I do, what do I not do, and so forth and so on. 
but within that, it's basically voluntary. And I'm also suggesting that's the history of the world. The whole construction of Sunni Islam, the whole construction of Shia Islam, includes within them, okay, well, what if the governance, what if the government is also identifying with this, but also what if the government is not? In most cases, it's not. How many times in Muslim history is the government embracing one of the schools of law, right? There, I think we discussed this in the last class that um, there's a small window in the latter Ottoman Empire where they tried to codify Hanafi law. There's a small window under the Mughal, under Alamgir, where they tried to codify Hanafi law. Right? But often the law of the people of the community was a little bit different than the law of the empire. They didn't necessarily contradict but the authority that the imam may have had, the Sunni imam, was related to the authority that the community gave that person. And, and so, so the point is that in America, I can open up a masjid and call it a masjid. And 100% of all the beliefs contradict what you and I understand to be Islam. And my masjid could be filled just because I'm super charismatic. And that is the reality, not just of, of the secular realm, it's especially the reality of the secular realm. But this is the reality of human history. The brutal reality of human history, I'm saying that power at the social level, collective level, is, is uh, what determines all of these things. At the level of your heart, it's your voluntary choice. Any, any, um, any thoughts in response? Just, just one, just one thought, and and, yeah. and maybe more, more of a question. Please. So, um, would there be like a, a hybrid of this model when we consider Shia Islam or or Catholicism, where they have the Pope or the Imam, and we're not quite at the state level? Uh, dictating, uh, you know, uh, uh, morality and things like that. Uh, but also, you take away some of that individual and, and make it back, uh, transfer it back to the religious authority, and you are following that uh, in that sense. Versus in in Sunni Islam, it's it, it starts to become more more open and more uh, individualized uh, in that sense, right? I, I would say in the case of of Shia Islam, if I'm following a particular mujtahid, so let's say I'm following Ayatollah Sistani. Uh, it is still voluntary, uh, uh, a voluntary process, meaning there's not much to excommunicate me. In, in Catholicism, you're going to find a whole bunch of Catholics that completely disagree with Pope Francis. Um, and you will also find some Catholics that do get officially excommunicated, yes. Um, and I'm saying those are two different things. And keep in mind, Pope Francis is literally the connection to the divine in Catholicism. And you have people who will still disapprove, who will say he's too liberal. Right? Uh, but you will also have other Catholics that are officially getting excommunicated. So in some degree, uh, there is an amount in the Catholic Church where it's a step more than voluntary. Meaning the community, there is a structure that can officially determine that you're not part of this. Um, and 
I would suggest in in uh, a Shia or Sunni tradition, a lot of that depends upon where we are in the world, whether there's a power of excommunication, but not much in terms of formal excommunication. Make sense? Okay. Uh, Any other thoughts? Yeah, so I was just trying to comprehend uh, this point and trying to see if this is a new phenomenon or if if this is this has been the case mm -hmm. uh, so for example um you know secularism has wide opened the window uh, of saying that you know all of these things are we don't care about only if you you know you kill somebody and stuff like that you know we're mm -hmm. we're gonna punish you so that basically in general to a to the population uh, gives a message that okay you can do uh, whatever you want to, right? And uh, the society really, you know, uh, might, because it is multicultural, multi-religious, uh, it's not going to really push back on you. Uh, mm -hmm. So you're, but you were making a point uh, that this is, um, this has taken away the power from the religious. Uh, but if let's say you were in any other Muslim government don't they also do the same thing? Like they might be more restrictor, but um, but do they take away the uh, the power from religious or no other religious? Oh. Well, okay, I'll give you uh, I'll give you a couple answers to that. Uh, uh, one is uh, so who writes the first book of Al-Qaeda? It's Imam Abu Hanifa. Okay, so about. 150 years, give or take, after the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And he, and so it's called Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar. And why is he writing this? Because uh, apparently there are other people in society who are claiming to be Muslim, and he's recognizing they have problems in what they believe. Yeah. So he writes this. But does he have coercive power to say, you have to follow this? No, it's voluntary. You know, it's voluntary of whether or not I am following it. Right. I might feel it's coercive just because everyone around me might believe the same thing, but fundamentally it's voluntary adherence. A different example uh, earlier is the Hawadij. And the Hawadij comes along and says, you know, uh, uh, Ali is a kafir, Muawiyah is a kafir because they did XYZ things. And then they implement their own coercion by going on a rage of, of killing people until they're eventually finally stopped and shut down under Muawiyah. And, and, and so uh, those would be other examples in the early, early parts of our history, right? In terms of contemporary history, uh, when did the Ahmadis be considered officially non-Muslim in, in Pakistan? Was it in 1947? 74. 73. Oh, 73. Yeah, it was in the 70s. Yeah. And why? Because of the push by people for that to ha happen. Oh, there was actually a, a violent incident, uh, and uh, unfortunately, it was the Sunnis that triggered it because mm -hmm. there was there was a few Sunni students who had raised some slogans in Rabwa, which is the Ahmadis' uh, home base, mm -hmm. and uh, the reaction of the Ahmadis to them was pretty severe. And then the counter reaction nationwide was even more severe. And so Bhutto was left with no option but to declare them non-Muslims. It wasn't a religious impulse, but uh, 
it was a political religious impulse, which mm-hmm. actually brings me to the point that uh, dil- uh, further dilation on, on buses, you know, in a society like America, it is probably good that uh, religious sensibilities are curtailed in the larger interest of power, not coercing either a religious conformism or prohibition of a religious practice. But in societies like Pakistan, uh, which are more homogenous, uh, um, power is pro- probably a good thing in order to conform orthodoxy uh, or the enforce orthodoxy or orthopraxy. Obviously, some disadvantages will accrue from both situations, but uh, definitely in America, I think, uh, at the expense of our individual religious sensibilities, I think uh, the, the power uh, uh, being at bay in order to uh, uh, is probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, which well, means that if uh, I, as a Muslim, will have to accommodate a homosexual Muslim view in the public sphere in America, I probably uh, would be willing to live with that within this context. Because the flip side of it is that that power could just as well uh, be used to curtail my religious uh, uh, practice and my religious views as well. Well, that part, that whole point that you just made, hold on to that, because that's also going to be relevant um, to, to future discussions. So on the one hand, you know, I emphasized in the last class, do not automatically look at secular as bad. I'm also not saying look at secular as good either, right? And a point that we'll be leading to is you also, we also will have to look at the secular as its own value system, meaning almost to the say uh, that secular is its own religion. But that will stay for a future discussion, inshallah. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm sorry for, I know that a lot of people still wanna continue discussion, but we're also already way over time. So I apologize for that. Uh, the target is to be a maximum of an hour um, and usually like 40 minutes, but we might just make it longer if people want. Um, but we'll stop right here and we'll continue in next week. Uh, subhanakallah. Good, good. Lively discussion. And all those of you who do discuss quite a bit, please continue to do so. And all those of you who remain silent, please feel comfortable in jumping in, interjecting. Um, it adds to the conversation. Okay, very good. Uh, reward you all. And we'll continue. We'll see you in a week, inshallah.